me as we sing praises to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. gracious Heavenly Father, you are our deliverer, our shield, and our refuge, the author of our salvation. We praise you and offer you our everlasting thankfulness because you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer his life for our sake on the cross. He is our strength and our song, and he has become our salvation. He was the stone that the builders rejected, and he's become the cornerstone of our salvation and the Savior of the world. For no one in the world will ever find salvation in any other, nor anyone come to you, Father, except through him. We embrace him alone as our Savior, trusting his word as fully sufficient, and we come by faith to the one who has already done everything for us, and even in that, we know that the only hope we have of abiding in Christ lies in the grace that made us alive to him in the first place. So, Lord, we cling to you in faith, asking that you keep us always near the cross. In the name of our crucified and risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, yes, we'll, uh, you'll notice it's a little different up here today. We have our mission team in Guatemala. Uh, they've been down there since Thursday. And David and Debbie are there. So we have uh, Miss Ann playing the piano for us this morning. And we're grateful for that. Uh, we also are glad that you're all here to worship with us today because we're here to worship the only one who is worthy of our worship. Uh, you'll find the famous white card, I didn't grab one, but in the back of the pew, uh, if you're visiting with us today, uh, we ask that you please fill out this card and place it in one of the offering plates in the back as you leave. Members also, if you uh, have a prayer need or if there's something that you uh, have a question about, uh, those cards are also available for that as well. We also need to remember our Guatemala team in prayer today, our, our mission team, as they're working to build houses. I think they're 
uh, I can't remember how many houses they're building this year. It's 10 or something like that. And then also they serve the meals. You'll remember uh, that there's a trash dump down there. That's where a lot of the people have to go to get food. So they're going to be so excited uh, to be able to get some food. You know, even Jesus, he gave food to the, to the, to the 5,000 and the 4,000, right? But then the most important thing that we need to keep in mind is the gospel that's going to be shared down there to those people. Uh, they need the living water. They need the bread of life. And so let's keep them in prayer for that. Now, this morning we're going to be singing some songs uh, that remind us that it's because of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that we have victory over death, that we have a living hope in Christ, that the God of the past is still on his throne no matter what's going on in our world today, that our God is a mighty fortress, and that all we have and need is Christ.
reading this morning from Psalm 
46, verses 1 through 3, 10 through 11. Really fits with what we're singing about this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away. And though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then this, all that cacophony, all that trouble, all those things, waves, wind. And then it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. It's a crazy time we live in. I know that. And it's going to get crazier. But you know what? God's not worried about it. Be still, Christian, and know. And he's also the God from the past. You know, he's the God of the future. He's the God of the present. We can look at the past and see all that he's done. In fact, we're going to hear an account this morning, David and Goliath, and and an account of the past and how God worked. And so we're going to be singing, God, Oh God, our help in ages past. And then we're just going to sing on through until the sermon, all right?
father use my ransom life in any way? Good morning, church. How are you? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. One of the problems I think of having worship before I preach is I lose my voice. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me, and he bought me. His own redeeming blood. Man, God broke my heart at that point. He sought me. He sought you, like a good shepherd that he is. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Before I begin today, um, Phil um, alluded to it earlier, we do have a group of, um, of brothers and sisters from this church who are in Guatemala right now serving the Lord, and um, I was interacting with Blake, um, our um, missions pastor, and I said, is there a church, an update I can give to the church? So I'll read you what he responded to me yesterday. He says, it's been a great two days of ministry. We have about an hour of work left to complete all 10 houses. Now, if you're not familiar with, with the work there, we, we go and part of the ministry is building houses. And um, I was just talking with Lane because I didn't think that was right. I'm like, how could you build a house in two, 10 houses in two days? He's like, oh, no, it's very possible. And so they have almost completed 10 houses in this village. The rain has held off during the day and has enabled us to get much work done. Friday afternoon, a group of us hosted a one-day vacation Bible school. We had over 60 kids in attendance. On Saturday, after we, had, um, after we led in a women's retreat, and again, they had 60 ladies attend that, 
They had their nails done. But more importantly, the gospel was presented. God is good, and we look forward to worshiping with you, our brothers and our sisters. Um, oh, we look forward to worshiping with our brothers and sisters here in Guatemala. So that is the, that is the official report from Blake. That is how they're doing. They're doing well. And if you have opportunity to serve our church, we have, we'll have several different missions trips for next year. I would encourage you to, to take an opportunity and to serve um, in that capacity and, and doing those things. This morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you will turn, turn there with me, um, we're, going to, we're going to be there. We're going to talk about the story of David and Goliath. Now, I do want to give a quick, brief encouragement and exhortation to you. Most of you have probably been here in church for a long time. You've probably grown up in Sunday school, and you're very familiar with this passage. A danger that we can run into as we've spent long time as children of God is we could let familiar things become mundane and pedestrian. In fact, I was teaching a Sunday school lesson at one point, and a man walked, got up and walked out. I thought he was just going to go use the bathroom or had to go take care of something. He'd come back. He'd never come back. So afterwards, I asked him, I said, hey, where, where'd you go? And he's like, oh, I've heard that story a hundred times. I really don't. And he was like, I'm, I, don't need it. I don't need it anymore. I said, well, brother, let's think about this. And um, I, it would be very easy for some of you to come to this passage and say, man, David and Goliath, man, I've heard this story a hundred times, maybe a thousand times. But I'm going to tell you this. The truths and lessons from God's word are like rocks in your garden here in southwest Missouri. You can till over it year after year after year after year, and there's still more rocks to pick out. You can go over the rich garden and soil of God's word year after year, day after day, and the gems and the precious stones of God's word and God's truths will just keep coming up. So, as we come to David and Goliath, please don't ego, eyes glaze over. I know, that's me trying to be relevant. So we've marked that off the, the, the bucket list of the, the things trying to accomplish. Don't, don't let your eyes glaze over. Let's come back and let's read this story with fresh eyes and understand what God is doing. I've entitled the sermon, New King on the Block. Hopefully my 80s and 90s people will appreciate the reference there. We'll explain what I mean by New King on the Block when we get in just a little further. But first of all, let's begin where our passage begins. Chapter 17 can be broken up into two primary parts. One, there is a situation. There's a problem. Part number two, God sends the solution. Very easy way to, 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 to dissect this chapter. Let's start with looking at the situation. We won't read, there's a lot of ground to cover, so we won't be reading a lot, but we'll be reading some. The scene is set for us, and the problem begins here in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered there at Sokah. We'll stop there. The Philistines. The Philistines are an enemy of Israel. They occupied the coastal shorelands of the Mediterranean Sea. They are what kept Israel from having a sea economy. 
Now we're told they're met in Soka. Their armies are gathered together. They come to this place, and it's right on the border of Judah. So the Philistines are coming in. They're marching east. They're trying to encroach on the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. They're there at Judah. They're there with their armies. Remember, the Philistines, they're advanced. They're advanced militarily. They were known for their brutality. They were known for their military strategy. But they were also advanced technologically. Now, they might not have the Star Wars program and all the cool stuff that we have today, but they were advanced technologically. If you're familiar with with civilization, you remember the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. The Philistines were some of the first people who found out, listen, if we took our bronze and we took our iron and put them together, that makes our weapons that much stronger. And so they put iron in a lot of their stuff and all of their weapons in their chariots. And they knew this was such an advantage that they tried to keep Israel and their, and their enemies from getting iron ore to mix. I started watching Forged in Fire. It's a, it's a competition of, 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 of people working metal. I didn't get worked up about this part of the scripture until I started watching that show. But it's important because the Philistines are here. They're advanced militarily. They're advanced technologically. And they're coming up and they're pressing against the people of Israel and Judah. They're looking to make headway to take away the land that was promised to God's chosen people. They're there. They're on one side of the mountain. Verse 3, the Philistines stood on the one side of the mountain. And Israel, they came out with their battle plans. And they came out and stood on the other side of a mountain. And there was a valley between them, and that valley is the valley of Elah. And verse 4, And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, who was six cubits and a span. There's a country song that I like to listen to, and one of the lines goes like this, There was a mountain of a man with a born-to-kill tattoo. He tried to step in. So I knocked out his front tooth. The second half of that you can throw away. But the first half, there's a mountain of a man with a born-to-kill tattoo. That's, who I, that's how I imagine Goliath. Six cubits in a span is about nine feet. He was big. He was a mountain of a man. He was a warrior. Now, sometimes when people get really tall, they're really thin, Right? And, and, and they grow up, but they don't grow out. But that's not Goliath. We're given specifics about his armor and about his, um, his weapons. Just his male alone was 115 pounds. He would walk around with 115 pounds doing battle. He was strong. He was a presence. He struck fear in the part of people who saw him. Now, it might not look like it, but I work out. And one of the things I do at the very beginning of my workout in order to get my heart rate up is I take two 35-pound kettlebells. That's 70 pounds for, for those of us who struggle with math. That's 70 pounds. And I climb the flight of stairs five times. And I'm huffing and puffing when I'm going down the stairs my first time. Goliath has almost... Double that, wearing that, walking around, fighting. The point is, is this. This dude 
is a monster. He comes out. He has a presence. He strikes fear in the heart of those who see him. And then in verse 8, he makes this challenge. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Why are you even here? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then he will be your, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that he, we may fight together. This enemy, this foreboding enemy, steps out and it speaks. And it says, hey, let's make this a very high-risk, high-stake game. All or nothing. The first pink slip ever. You come out and fight against me, you all, and you win, you get all of us and we serve you. I win, you serve us. The stakes are extremely high. And what is the response of God's people? Verse 11. When Saul, now there's no accident that Saul is listed first in this passage. Now Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. The Hebrew word there for dismayed means to have your courage sucked out of you at an instant. To, to, to have the wind leave your sails. If you ever jumped off of a cliff into, a, into to water, has anyone ever done that? You climb up, you get there, you're full of bravado and you're full of courage until your toes curl around the, the, the edge of the cliff and then you look down and you go, Ugh! and you back up. Just in an instant, you can lose all courage and all hope. That's what happened to Saul and Israel. The Goliath comes out. He speaks. He makes a challenge. And everything that's in them is taken away. There is no strength in them, and they're greatly afraid. That is the situation. The armies and the king of Israel are facing an enemy they cannot defeat and will not try to. They are facing an enemy that is foreboding, that is advanced, that is out of their category. They're out of their weight class, and none of them are willing to go and fight. And here is the problem. We all have enemies that we cannot fight on our own. We're going to talk later about two enemies that we have, sin and death. Big foreboding enemies that we have that we cannot face on our own. So I just threw that out there for you. Chew on that. We'll get back to it. Verse 12. Here was where we come into our sermon. You're thinking, oh, great. Here's our sermon. Now David. Now David. Two little words. Here is where the story pivots. Here's where the story changes. 
Because now comes on the scene this little young shepherd boy who's there to do nothing more than run errands for his brothers. Between keeping track of the sheep back in his hometown in Judah and coming to the battle to just give supplies to his brothers, he shows up here. And when God's people are facing an enemy that they cannot defeat, little poor David shows up. Now, let's pause here, and here's the first point of the sermon. The first point of this sermon is this. Because Saul failed as king of Israel, not defeating this giant like he's supposed to, God sends a king that he has chosen. If you were just to take chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel and just pick it out, you could come to the conclusion that David is just some nobody from some nowhere, and he just pops onto the scene. But that's not the case. We always have to remember to read the Bible in context. Saul just doesn't appear on the scene as the king of Israel, uh, king of Israel here. What the author of Samuel is doing, and here, here's what I believe with my whole heart, the more I study this, the author of Samuel is trying to tell us a story of the king of Israel, of two different kings of this story, in this story. This is a story of two kings. Saul, remember, was mentioned first. And when Saul and all of Israel heard it, they were dismayed. You see, Saul was the old king. He was currently on the back, I just went out. If you were to go back to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, you would read a story of Saul going out to battle and God giving specific instructions, and Saul n- deliberately disobeyed God. And as a result of his disobedience and his disregard for God's command and God's word, God rejected him as king of Israel. Though he was still on the throne, God had promised, I will not let you stay on the throne nor your family. I reject you as king. He was a failed king. He was a lame duck king because he did not love the Lord. He was not concerned with the commands of the Lord. But David, David, in this story, he currently appears to be a nobody from, some, from nowhere, But previously, if you read chapter 16, you would learn that David one day was out tending his sheep, minding his own business, and God sends the prophet Samuel to go find a new king for Israel. And after going through the first seven sons of Jesse, God says, no, no, that's not, I don't like that one. That one's not mine. That one's not the one I want. Finally, he gets to David And says, Samuel, this is the king that I want. This is the king that I choose. And so Samuel anointed David with oil. And the moment that he was anointed with oil, we're told the Holy Spirit of God rushed upon him. It filled him. And it never departed from him. So when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 17... And you look at verse 12 and you see, now David. He's not just a poor shepherd boy. He is the anointed, empowered, chosen king of God to save and lead his people. And he comes on the scene in humility, 
in servanthood, and in weakness. Hold on to that thought. So God sends the king that he has chosen to deliver his people. In our story today, though David is not king yet, he is dawning as God's chosen king over his people. If you've ever been outside and you've seen complete darkness, then all of a sudden the light starts to break. The sun isn't out, but it's, it's coming, and its light starts bending over the horizon. That's what the story is all about. God's chosen king is beginning to dawn a new era, a new type of leadership to lead Israel into a new chapter and a new epic of its history. And David is God's chosen king, and he comes dawning a glorious, God-honoring, God-fearing, God-centered faithfulness that would lead his people. David is the light of godly kingship that is breaking the darkness of Saul's ungodly rule. But David is not only the king that God sends as his chosen king. We're going to see also that God sends a king that has conviction. David was a man who loved God. If you were to compare and contrast Saul and David, Saul doesn't seem to be concerned with God really at all. He's all about man's ways of winning battles. He's all concerned about the, 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 the mundane, temporary stuff. David, on the other hand, is a man of conviction. Let's read in verse, um, let's start in verse 20 of chapter 17. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out on the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. Now let's pause there. If you go back and read verse 16, it tells us that this has been going on for 40 days. This isn't just something that happened. Goliath came out one day, and a couple days later, David comes. For 40 days, for 40 days, the people have been afraid of Goliath. They come up, they come to, they draw to the battle line, they all get pumped up, and Goliath comes out, and they all run away. And David's here this time. Verse 22, and David left the things in charge of the keeper and the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers, and they talked, and he talked with them. And when he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up and out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words he had before, and David heard them. David heard the words of the uncircumcised Philistines defy the armies of God. And it gets his goat. It jerks his chain. It makes him angry and indignant. Verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw him, fled, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Check this dude out. He's got pythons for arms and little baby heads for shoulders, and you can't see his neck. They said, look who's come up. Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. They're telling David, do you see the guy who's defying us? 
man, if somebody goes and kills him, they're going to be tax-free. They're going to become part of royalty through marrying the king's daughter. And you're going to be rich. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistines and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Everyone else was standing around waiting for someone to stand up and fight this Philistine. But all they could see was a giant of a man who was just born to kill. David heard the same threat. And he said, who is this person that would defy the armies of God? You see, David had a conviction concerning the people of God. When Goliath approached there at the line in verse 8, and he says, I know, you know that I'm a Philistine, and you're the servants of Saul. All, all Goliath saw was just an army of people following a king. David, however, knew that Israel was more than just a nation. They were the chosen people of God, loved by him, delivered by him, saved by him, redeemed by him. He was convicted that being a part of the people of God meant something. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, 6. What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? What was David so convicted about? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Moses is talking to the people of Israel and he's telling them who they are. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord. What does it mean to be holy to the Lord? It means that God had separated them from the rest of the world. They were special. They were not like everyone else. God had separated them. He had sanctified them. He had removed them from the rest of the world to himself. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Out of every nation that could have existed, for some reason, God chose Israel to be his people. And David when he heard the giant defy Israel, he heard the giant not just defy an army, but he heard the giant defy the chosen, treasured people of God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, 15. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 15. What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. God set his heart of love on you. David knew that being a part of the people of God was something special. And for anyone to come up and defy Israel and defy the armies of God, he knew and was convicted that that was something wrong, that there was something shameful about it, and he wasn't going to stand for it. Oh, that we would have a conviction about belonging to the people of God and to the body of Christ. Oh, that we would understand 
that he sought us and bought us to make us his holy temples. And it's no small thing to be a part of this church. It's no small thing to be a part of the people of God. David was a man of conviction. He had a conviction concerning the people of God. But he also had a conviction concerning the God of his people. He was convicted. He had certain convictions about God. First of all, going back to verse 26, we see that David was convicted. He was convinced. He strongly held to the fact that God was a living God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you this morning, we do not serve a dead God. The gods of the Philistines, looking right across the valley, Baal, Dagon, they were idols. Psalm 115 tells us that these idols are made with man's hands and in our likeness. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, they cannot smell. They have mouths, but they cannot taste or speak. They have hands on feet, but they can't go out and do anything. The gods of this world are impotent. They are a mute point. But the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who saved and delivered the people out of Egypt and defeated all of their gods, the God who had given them promised land, was a God who was alive and active. He is a God who doesn't just create the world, spin it into motion, and step away. God is alive and he is active. And David knew that he was going to be with him in the battle. Do you believe that God is alive? Or are you a practical atheist? A practical atheist is a person who says they believe in God but live their lives like everything's dependent upon them and they don't give him any recognition. Do you believe that God is alive and is active? This is a conviction that led David to fight the giant. But not only did he believe that God was a living God, but he also believed that God of Israel was the God of deliverance. Look at verse 37. David's talking to King Saul, and he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He was sure He was convicted that the God who had delivered him previously would be the God that would continue to deliver him presently. God is a God who is alive, and therefore he is the God that we can depend upon to deliver us. Do you believe that God is a God of deliverance? Do you believe that there is victory in Jesus because there is a God who is alive and who is doing something in the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. David was convicted that God was the God of deliverance. Look, look, scroll down to verse 46. This is David talking to the Philistine. This day, this day, David tells the giant, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give your dead bodies this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
David had a conviction about who God was, and he had a conviction about why he was fighting. He was fighting to show the world that God was alive and God was a deliverer, and through his actions and through his battle and through his fight with the giant, the world was going to see the greatness of God and give God the praise, the honor, and the glory. How do we live our lives? Do you live your lives in a way in which you go out and you live in a way where people see the glory of God? Can people look at your life and say, man, that person lives like God is alive and that God is a deliverer and a savior and that God means something to me or them? David had convictions. And these convictions then, I believe, led to his courage. David was a king. This is point number three. God sends a king that lives by courage. His convictions led him to have courage to go and do things. Oh, so many times we stay, we, we stay silent, we stay immobile because we lack conviction of who God is, why we're fighting. We, lose, we don't have the convictions to fuel the fire inside of us to take courage and go. You see, David had the courage to challenge the people of Israel in verses 25 through 30. David went around asking people, who is going to be the person that kills this Philistine and takes away our reproach? Is it you guys? No? All right, guys over here. I know what the, I know what the reward is for winning the battle, but who of you are going to def- take care of this, this, this big brute? No one. And word gets around. He goes around and he challenges people, and there's no one willing to step up finally. Someone here take, gets wind of David and his passion and his conviction, and they take him to Saul. He's had the courage to challenge the people around him. He had the courage to face his family. Now, families sometimes are the hardest people to deal with. I'm not joking. I just had, I just had a friend come by and just talk about how difficult it is sometimes to live a godly life with a family that doesn't have the same values. In verse 28, now Eliab, David's oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Sometimes family can be the biggest wet blanket on the souls, on our souls, can't they? Eliab, who was actually overlooked to be the king, going back to chapter 16, was, was mad at David for even bringing this up. And David's response is so typical sibling rivalry. What's your problem, man? What have I done now? Didn't I just say something? Just let me talk. He had courage to confront his family. He had courage to comfort the king. Verse 32. Now remember, the, 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 the king was supposed to be the person who led Israel and led God's people. He was supposed to be the leader. He was supposed to be the one giving comfort. He was the one supposed to be giving hope and surety and confidence to his his men and to the army. But he's cowering in his tent. And David says to Saul in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Oh, we're the right man on our side. We just sang about that. The God of man's own choosing. David comes and he comforts the king. He has courage then to confront his enemy. 
after David talks to Saul and says, hey, I'm going to go. God's going to deliver me. David then confronts Goliath. Let's read verses 37 through 47 right now. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put his helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Saul was trying to do everything humanly possible to stack the odds in David's favor, even if it was just a little bit. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his one hand and chose five smooth stones from a brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And in his sling he had it in his other hand. And he approached the Philistine. He put his money where his mouth was. He said, I'm going to go. The Lord's going to deliver me. And he approaches. Verse 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, was dis- he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. This big mountain of a man with a born-to-kill tattoo walks to the front and goes, who is this puny little puke? Who, who do you think you are? I am a warrior. I am a man of men. And you with the stick, you little boy, you little teenage kid, you think you're going to do something? And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I love the dialogue here. It's great. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you with all the armor that Saul gave me. No. I come to you with military strategy. No. I come to you with all the prowess of of a great strategic military mind. No. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I'll cut off your head and I will give the bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and not with the spear. God doesn't use human implements to save battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. David had the courage to confront the enemy. David's convictions led him to be courageous. And then we see that God sends a king that leads his people to conquest. God sends a king who leads his people to conquest. Let's continue reading. David makes this statement. He makes this wonderful, wonderful declaration about God saving him. And then when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, 
David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine right in the forehead. When you're nine feet tall, your head is probably big enough to be a pretty good-sized target. And the stone sank into the forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Note, David conquered Goliath. David, when the Philistines started coming after him, what did he do? He ran. He ran towards the giant. Remember back in verse 24, when, when Goliath came out to the line of the battle? He made his challenge, and what did the Israelites do? What did they do? They fled, and they ran away. David, God's chosen king, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, anointed to be God's chosen king, came and he ran towards the enemy. And he took his stones and he fought and he prevailed. Verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone. And he struck down the Philistine and killed him and there was no sword in David's hand. He made a promise. I'm going to kill you and I'm going to cut off your head. Only one problem. No sword. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. When they saw the victory of God's chosen king over the giant Goliath, they were the ones quaking in their boots. And they're the ones who turned yellow and they ran. David conquered Goliath. He prevailed. And David's victory gave boldness and gave courage to the rest of Israel. Look at verse 51b. All right, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Verse 52, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way at Sharam and as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. After 40 days of fearing and trembling and running away from the enemy they could not and would not defeat, once God's man comes and wins the battle, they get the, they get the courage and they start chasing after him. Maybe some of you aren't chasing the enemies that you need to chase because you don't really, you don't really appreciate the battle that's been won for you in Christ. David's victory emboldened Israel. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. At this point, this is where you could say that David gets ahead in his military advancement. But I won't say that. You could, though. <laughs> David is the king that God chose. David is the king that had conviction, that had courage. And that brought conquest. The story of David and Goliath is not a story about an underdog. It's a story about two kings. 
A king who had failed to do what he was supposed to do. And a king that God chose to come and deliver his people. If we were to step back from our Bibles, this whole story of the Bible is about two kings. Two men who represent and lead all of humanity. One king is a failure. One king is a victor. There's one king that was rejected because of his rebellion. And there's one king who was accepted because of his faithfulness. The one king, Adam. The other, Jesus Christ. Adam, we are told in Romans 5... is the reason for our fallen condition. And he is our fallen king. And because of him and what happened in Genesis chapter 3, we have two very real, very terrifying enemies, sin and death. There are two enemies that face every human being in this world, sin and death. And they're bigger than Goliath. The stakes are higher than what Goliath brought that day. Physical death is bad, but Jesus says you need to be more concerned with the second spiritual death. Sin and death are our two enemies. But praise be to God, 2,000 years ago, there was a little baby born in Bethlehem. Born in an insignificant little stable only worshipped by shepherds in the field, later to be worshipped by the kings who would come from the east. He came, just like David does, humble, a servant, not with anything, but he was God's chosen person. He was God's chosen man, God's chosen son to lead his people. And he has defeated our two enemies, sin and death. And as we close today, turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're just going to read these passages and let God's word tell us how Jesus has gained victory and has won our victories for us in our, the face of our enemies. Colossians chapter 2. Paul is going to tell us how Jesus defeated sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. And he says, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive together with him. And that him there is Jesus Christ. He's made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Circle the word all there, please. There is not one sin that the blood of Jesus Christ does not cover. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside how? How did God take care of the debt that we could not pay? By nailing it to the cross. In the cross of Calvary, there is salvation over our sin. There is victory in Jesus. There is victory at the cross. And God does not save by sword, does he? He saves by sending his son, becoming like a sheep 
who is slaughtered. He wins and gains the victory in the most unusual, unpredictable way. Maybe you're here today and you know you're a sinner. You know you deal with sin. You know that you know, you know that you're just kind of rotten to the core. And you don't know what to do. You've tried to change. You've tried to change. You've tried to do right. I'm here to tell you that in the cross of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. All of them. Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So stop letting Satan and the enemy try to keep you back and keep you down by keeping you guilty and feeling guilty about your sin It's forgiven. Nailed to the cross. But there's a second enemy, death. Death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there with me real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. On the cross, Jesus dealt with the enemy of sin. And coming from the grave three days later, Jesus defeats death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There was some question there. And Paul's telling the Corinthians, Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. Are you fearful of death? Are you feel f- fearful of going into the ground and having dirt cover your face, your body, and never coming back? You don't have to be scared of it. Jesus is the first fruit. You know what, first, you know what the definition of first fruits is? It's the fruits who are first. The first cucumber that you pick from your garden is a representation and a symbol of all the cucumbers that you're going to get later on. The first ripe tomato, if you like such things, is the first fruits to show you what's going to happen later in the season. And so when you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the first fruits. As he went into the grave, dead as a doornail, Not swooned, not just fainted, but dead, lifeless, thinite. He rose victorious three days later. And we have victory over death. Not because of us and our own strength, but because of Christ. So this morning, I want us to go back to the battlefield and understand in 1 Samuel 17... We're not the Davids of the story. We're the people of Israel facing enemies whom we cannot defeat. And Jesus Christ is God's chosen king to save us. Take courage, take strength. The the battle is won. The victory has, has been gained. And we're waiting a day when it comes to its completion. We're waiting in a day when all the rest of the armies, we're like the Israelites now. Now we've got the courage. We have the battles won. The Goliath is dead. And now we can go and we can chase the enemy ourselves. So let's land this plane. Let's pray. And we're going to have a time of invitation. Our Father in heaven, we come to you today.
And I just pray right now. I just want to thank you. That while we were running our hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you loved us. You came and sought us. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and face the enemies that we were unable to face and defeat ourselves. And I pray that you would give us victory, and I pray that we would live in victory. I pray that you would give us conviction that you are the God who is alive and the God who delivers. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to kind of go old school today. Please stand with us. We're going to sing Just As I Am. If you've battled sin and you know you're a sinner and you know you can't win the battle of your sin and you need Jesus, come forward and make a public, we'll we'll pray with you and come accept Christ as your Savior. If you're scared of death and you want the victory and you want the assurance to know that one day you don't have to die forever, but you can be raised to newness of life in Christ, come forward. We will love to come and pray with you. But we're going to sing all four verses just because we're going to sing all four of them. They're good. All right, let's sing.
I hope I'm not like a bad guest who's outdone his welcome. But thank you very much. To God be the glory. May we go out today singing hallelujah, all I have is Christ. May God be with you. May he cause his face to shine upon you as you go out today. God bless you, and may he be with you. Okay, we're just, as we close, we're just going to sing all hail the power of Jesus' name on our way out. And as he said, may we go out and show that God is in control. name let angels prostrate fall bring forth the